Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy, and today we're headed to Germany. This episode is about one of the biggest cases in Germany, and although it began 40 years ago, it's still a controversial case today. Just a heads up that this episode does involve the murder of a child, and there will be mention of animal cruelty. If that's not something you want to deal with as part of your day, skip this one, but please come back for the next episode. All right, let's get started. Nestled in the alpine foothills deep in the far south of Germany is a lake called Lake Ammersy. Along its shoreline, you'll find century-old villages where wealthy families from Munich and other large cities buy homes, and tourists will sit down to admire the lake and enjoy a good German beer. At the north end of Ammersy are two of these beautiful villages. They are separated by a two-mile strip of spruce forest. Along the lake is a gravel path that leads from one end to the other and runs through the forest. It was this path that a 10-year-old little girl named Ursula Herman used regularly. She rode her little red bicycle along the lake after school, visiting friends and attending after-school activities. Her route was no different on Tuesday, September 15, 1981. It was the first day of a new school year for Ursula. The school day was short, and this left plenty of time for extra activities. First, she returned home, where she practiced piano with her oldest brother, Michael. He was 18 at the time. Afterwards, she'd head to her late afternoon gymnastics lesson. It was in the town of Schondorf, just through the woods. She rode her bike through the forest, glancing out at the lake when it came into view through the trees. The forest was dense. In some places, you wouldn't be able to see more than a few meters through the tangled undergrowth. When her gymnastics lesson was complete, she went to her cousin's house and ate dinner. At 7.20, her mom called, saying, Ursula, it's time to ride home. It was still light out, but darkness was creeping in. Luckily, the bike ride would only take 10 minutes. But after half an hour or so, her mother became concerned. Ursula wasn't home. She called her sister to see what was the holdup, but her sister said that Ursula had left 20 minutes earlier. They both knew that something was wrong. Ursula's father began driving along the path from Esching to Schondorf, and her uncle did the same, going the other way. They met in the middle, all the while calling for Ursula and listening for a response. But they only heard the sound of nature and the lapping of water at the lake shore. Within an hour, that changed. The forest was filled with the sounds of neighbors and police and firemen who joined in the search. Flashlights lit the path and spaces between the trees and shrubs. The lights glistened off the water and struggled to penetrate the thick undergrowth. Four and a half hours later, as midnight approached and rain began falling, a search-and-rescue dog led its handler away from the lake and into the brush. About twenty meters, or sixty feet from the path, was Ursula's little red bicycle. It was leaning up against a tree. Her gymnastics bag was hanging off the handlebars, but she was nowhere to be seen. At first light, the search intensified. There were boats searching the shoreline and a helicopter overhead. Well-intentioned volunteers trudged through the woods in raincoats and rubber boots, trying to cover every square inch of the forest. When crime scene technicians arrived early in the morning, they spotted wire hanging from a tree. It was near where the bicycle had been found. They wondered if it could be connected to the crime, but a fireman who took part in the search said that kids played in this forest all the time. 
It was probably just remnants of a game, so they decided not to take the wire into evidence and left it hanging. I'll come back to that wire later in this episode. Everyone hoped they'd be able to find the little girl, cold, shivering, and lost in the woods, but some were worried that something sinister had happened to her. The lake and the two small towns bordered three sides of the forest. The fourth border was an expensive private school called Landheim Schoendorf. The school was attended by children and young adults of the country's political and business elite. Students there would hear the news that morning that a little girl was missing in what was typically an idyllic part of the country. She was 1.43 meters, or 4 foot 7 inches tall, with short blonde hair. At the time, she was wearing dark green cords, a gray wool sweater, and reddish-brown sandals. Her father was a teacher, and her mother a homemaker, and they were worried sick. Twenty-four hours went by, and then thirty-six when odd phone calls began happening at the Herman house. When Ursula's parents picked up the phone, there would be silence on the line for a moment, and then a short, strange sound was played. It was a recognizable jingle, a tune played on a local radio station before and after traffic bulletins were announced. After the jingle played, there was silence, and then the jingle would be played once more, before the caller hung up. This happened several times, and it was strange enough that the local police department, who had men and women stationed inside the household, began recording the calls. It took some time for the police to install the recording equipment, so not all the calls were captured, but the same pattern of calls reoccurred two days later. By then, Ursula's parents had received a ransom note in the mail. It had been pasted together from newspaper clippings. It said, We kidnapped your daughter. If you want to see her alive again, then pay two million Deutschmarks ransom. It seemed as if the kidnappers had expected the letter to arrive a day earlier, just before the calls had begun. The note explained that they would call the Hermans using a jingle as their call sign. They had to then say if they would pay the ransom or not, and if they didn't pay, or if they called the police, they would kill Ursula. Those who feared the worst were justified. The path that led through the forest and along the shoreline was frequently used by bicyclists and pedestrians, as it was the fastest connection between the villages and it was popular because of the beautiful lake scenery. Towards dusk, this activity ceased. The abduction took place exactly when someone would find a child, but at the same time, there would be a very limited number of people on the path. Where she was presumably taken, there was a particularly thick area of undergrowth. It would have provided an ideal cover for the abductors. Where her bicycle was found, investigators noted that a path had been cut into the forest. The entrance to the path was hidden by a large fir tree. Imagine a big, thick Christmas tree sawed off at the base, and you'll have the right idea. It was placed at the entrance to disguise the narrow pathway into the forest. When Ursula approached, one or more abductors simply moved the tree, walked out of the forest onto the main path, and grabbed her. It's unclear whether she was forced to push her bike into the forest by herself or someone else did it, but the abductors would have only been visible for a few seconds, just long enough to make sure that no one saw them. Of course, in the beginning, no one knew she'd been abducted, but the ransom note had made things crystal clear.
As soon as the ransom instructions arrived and were read, Ursula's parents knew what they had to do. The next time the phone rang and the jingle sounded, Ursula's mother agreed to pay. She asked for proof of life, a sign that her daughter was still alive. She wanted to know what Ursula named her two stuffed animals. The kidnappers refused to answer, and Ursula's mother became frantic. Talk to me, she said. Say something from Ursula. The kidnappers, never speaking, hung up. Was this an effort to hide their voices? Would they have been recognizable to Ursula's parents? That evening, the kidnapper or kidnappers sent a second letter. It arrived six days after Ursula had been kidnapped. Inside were specific details regarding the ransom. The kidnappers wanted the money to be paid in used $100 Deutschmark bills. They should be packed in a suitcase and delivered to an unnamed location by Ursula's father. He should drive alone in a yellow Fiat 600, going no faster than 90 kilometers per hour or under 60 miles an hour. A Fiat 600 is an Italian car, and it was a very rare one in Germany. It was strange that the kidnappers were, would ask for such a specific vehicle and color. The words were cut out of local newspapers and magazines and were sloppily glued to paper, and possibly due to the difficulty of finding the right words, the letter was somewhat difficult to read and follow. Some words were missing or misspelled. Either that or the kidnapper wasn't that smart. Had the actual location for the ransom drop been forgotten? Or would there be a third letter? It was unclear whether Ursula was the intended victim or a victim of chance. Her family didn't have a lot of money. It seemed there would have been better targets who lived nearby who were very wealthy, people who could have easily paid the ransom. Thankfully, the Hermans were able to raise the money from friends and the state. They waited for further directions on where to take the money. They waited impatiently and then desperately for two weeks, but there were no more letters and no more calls. The police didn't have any strong leads, so they decided to search the forest again. More than 100 officers were brought in, along with 10 search and rescue dogs. The woods were divided into four quarters, and each of those four parts were divided into even smaller sections. They were searched in a grid format, with officers using metal rods to probe the ground. After three days of searching, they had covered most of the forest, and Ursula had been missing for a total of 19 days. On the fourth morning, at 9.30, there was a loud shout when an officer struck something solid under the soil. He was standing in a tiny clearing, about 800 meters or half a mile from the lake path. Officers rushed over, and after a few minutes of digging through leaves and a layer of clay, they found a blanket covering a piece of wood. They lifted the dirty brown blanket, and then the wood board, only to find a second board with hinges attached to it. It appeared to be the lid of a box. The lid was 72 centimeters by 60 centimeters, or about 28 by 24 inches. It was small. They initially thought the box might be full of guns. Apparently, hiding guns in the woods was a practice used by right-wing paramilitary groups in the area. The top had been painted green and was locked with seven sliding bolts. Using a shovel, the officer forced the lid open and looked inside. A face pointed up at them, as if turned toward the sound of rescue. It was Ursula. But she was dead.
The officers wept as they lifted her body out of the box. Two officers were sent to break the news to Ursula's parents. Their home was only a short walk from where Ursula had been buried. When they broke the news to her mother, she was too overwhelmed to ask any questions, and all Ursula's father wanted to know was if his daughter had been hurt before she died. The officers didn't have an answer for him at that moment, but a couple days later her autopsy report concluded that Ursula had died within 30 minutes to 5 hours of being buried. There were no signs of struggle or even movement inside that box. This led investigators to believe that she had been drugged beforehand, possibly with nitrous oxide. The box was 1.4 meters or about 5 feet deep. Inside it was a shelf and a seat that doubled as a toilet. Ursula had been found in a sitting position. It seemed as if the kidnappers had planned to keep her alive and somewhat comfortable. There was a small portable radio inside the box with the letters P.A. and M.A. scratched onto the clear plastic screen. It was tuned to a local radio station, the same one that played the jingles used in the ransom calls. Her kidnapper also left her with a small library. There were 21 choices of books, including comic books, love stories, horror, crime, and westerns. There was a light, three bottles of water, 12 cans of Fanta, two packs of chewing gum, six chocolate bars, and four packets of biscuits. Things were tidily arranged. She'd been placed inside the box with her back resting against a blanket that had been covered up and placed in a plastic bag. On her lap was another bag with a tracksuit inside it. She sat on a bench that had a hole cut in it, and underneath that hole was a bucket with some water that could be used as a restroom. Her head was tilted backwards and at an unnatural angle, and her eyes were closed. There were no fingerprints found inside the box, and there was no sign of a struggle or an attempt to break free. The walls of the box were lined with fabric, and the ceiling was painted with a varnish that could have been easily scratched but there were no fibers or paint from inside the box found under her fingernails. Nothing had been eaten or drank. Everything pointed to the conclusion that she was either dead or unconscious when she was placed inside the box, and that she never moved. There were drainage pipes wrapped in cloth and attached to the box, and there were air pipes leading into and out of the box, but her abductors didn't know that without a fan pushing or pulling air into the box, Ursula's air supply was severely limited. The box hadn't been buried very far under the ground, and had she lived, it's likely someone would have heard her calling for help. Or if she played the radio at full volume, there was a good chance searchers would have found her. The police believed they were looking for more than one kidnapper. The size and weight of the box alone would have been more than one person could move. At 60 kilograms, or over 130 pounds, it was unlikely that one person could have carried it all the way into the woods. Whoever brought it there must have known the area well, because they had chosen a very remote site with a, within what was really a fairly small wooded area. They also managed to avoid attention while clearing the path through the dense brush, and then spending hours digging the deep hole, and finally carrying the large box and partially burying it before the actual kidnapping took place. 
The woods were used by hunters and other nature lovers, so it was almost unbelievable that these preparations were done without being noticed by someone. The box itself was probably transported by car, most of the way, unless it was carried out of one of the neighboring homes, maybe in a cart or a wheelbarrow. If the kidnappers had access to a car, why wouldn't they just take the victim somewhere less populated? Why bury her right there, just a short distance from where she was kidnapped? In the nearby villages, parents became more protective of their children. The media frenzy surrounding the case spread quickly. Some of the press would say this case was Germany's version of the Madeleine McCann case. How could something happen to a child in such a busy area? Days after Ursula's body was found, she was buried. At the funeral, the press hounded her family. Michael, Ursula's oldest brother, was so angry that he knocked a camera out of one of the journalist's hands. It was around this time that the police finally decided it was time to ask the public for help. They offered a 30,000 Deutschmark reward for information, and the tips came pouring in. One name that came up was that of Werner Masarek. He was 31 years old and lived with his wife and two children. He lived just up the road from the Ehrman family, and his wife had actually been hired to help clean the Herman home in the past. Werner Masarek had quit school at age 15 and become a car mechanic for a while. But around the time of Ursula's disappearance, he owned a TV repair business. He was a large man, both tall and wide. The community knew he was a decent handyman, but he had a temper. He wasn't a popular guy, and he was heavily in debt. He owed the bank more than 140,000 Deutschmarks. That could be his motive. He was questioned a week after Ursula's body was found. Keep in mind, this was nearly a month after she disappeared. He couldn't remember what he was doing the night she went missing, but he said he'd go home and figure it out. The next day, he came back with an alibi. He'd been playing the board game Risk with a couple buddies that night. The police searched his home and workshop, but found nothing of interest. Meanwhile, forensic technicians were taking apart the box, searching for clues. The lid of the box had several layers of paint on them, two of which were strange colors, and one was a combination of two paints. It seemed that the paint was being used for a specialized purpose. All paint stores and producers in the area were contacted, but the lead went nowhere. The paint didn't narrow the search at all. One interesting point was that the kidnappers used a swimming pool paint to rust-proof the piping. Inside the box was a cheap radio. The antenna was gone, but a wire had been attached. As I mentioned earlier, the letters PA and MA were etched into the plastic, and at the bottom, the letters XIX were scratched into the metal. What did these mean? Could XIX stand for the number 19 in Roman numerals or something totally different? Perhaps it had something to do with the comic books that were part of the strange library left in the box. There was a reference to a yellow Fiat 600 in one of the magazines. This was the kind of car the kidnappers wanted Ursula's father to drive when he dropped off the ransom. Some of the aspects of the case seemed amateurish. The kidnappers didn't grab Ursula and drive her to a hidden location like nearly every other kidnapping. Was it possible they didn't have a car? 
The letters were sent from towns 20 kilometers or about 12 miles on either side of the crime scene. If they weren't driven there by car to be sent, a bicycle was a possibility. Some people wondered if the teenagers attending the prestigious private school could have been involved. They would have had reason to believe this when over a year after Ursula was kidnapped, that wire that was hanging from a tree near her bike resurfaced. The police were given a tip that two boys from the school, one nineteen and one twenty, had taken the wire down and kept it in a box in their room. When the police went to pay them a visit, they said they were following an owl in the forest one day when they spotted the wire. As a quick side note, owls are typically nocturnal, which means they only come out at night, so either the boys were lying or they were mistaken about what they were following. When the boys first found the wire, the ends hung down and weren't attached to anything, but it had been stretched out over a considerable distance, and the wire ran parallel with the path Ursula would have taken on her bike. The boys decided to follow the wire they found, taking it down as they went, and based on its starting and ending location, it's believed that the wire was used as a signaling device to let one person know that their victim was approaching. Perhaps there was a bell at one end, and the kidnappers had time to disconnect it before fleeing the scene. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. If there had been devices on the ends of the wire, they had to have been removed between 7.25 p.m. and when the bike was found, which was at 11.19. There were too many people in the area after that. It's possible the time frame may have been even shorter, since there had only been 30 minutes between when Ursula was kidnapped and when her father and uncle began to search for her. If she was a random target, her kidnapper or kidnappers would have had to find out who she was and ask for her address before they made her walk or they carried the ten-year-old nearly half a mile through the brush to the box. They would have had to knock her out at some point, too. The path they took crossed two forestry paths, which would have left them exposed. Then they'd have to put Ursula's body into the box, lock the seven bolts, then cover it with two to three inches of soil. They even took the time to plant a couple young trees on and around the box to help hide where they had dug. It seems unlikely they could have done all that in only 30 minutes, which means they were still out there working while the first search for Ursula began. There were some witness statements that confused things even further. At 11 p.m., a woman who lived on one side of the forest heard seven shots, fired one right after the other. It was dark out, and a hunter wouldn't have been shooting animals in the dark. At 11.30 p.m., witnesses saw two cars parked in separate locations alongside the park. One was by a bordering highway, and one was in a parking lot only a few meters from the location of the box. When the witness saw the second car, it sped away, but not before the witness saw the license plate number. This person obviously thought it was suspicious enough to record the license plate numbers. Police traced the driver, who had an explanation for his actions, and it must have been believable because the police refused to reveal the identity of the driver 
and the reasons behind speeding away. Since the sighting was hours after Ursula disappeared, it's possible the driver was a volunteer searcher who got scared when the witness approached. Or maybe it was something as innocent as kids firing a gun just for fun. It was against the law, but relatively harmless. Within weeks, Ursula's family and friends had been investigated and cleared. But Werner Masaryk was still on the police's radar. His alibi, that he was playing risk with his friends, was backed up by statements from them. But he didn't seem trustworthy, and neither did they. Police had found a single fingerprint on a piece of duct tape, and they planned to use it to link him or any other suspect to the crime. Unfortunately, it wasn't a match for Masaryk. They arrested him anyway, and took his two friends into custody as well. They were interrogated for several days before being released. A month later, another man who was a friend of Masaryk was questioned. His name was Klaus Pfaffinger. He was an unemployed mechanic and a drunk. His landlord had come forward to tell police that for the week before Ursula was kidnapped, he had seen Pfaffinger driving his moped around with a shovel strapped to the seat. The first day he was questioned, he denied everything. But on the second day, he was left alone with the police secretary for a few minutes when he asked a surprising question. What if I know something? When the investigators came back, he told them that his friend Werner Masaryk had asked him to dig a large hole in the middle of the forest. It was early September then, and he'd been paid a thousand Deutschmarks for his time. He agreed to the job, dug the hole, then later saw a box placed inside. The police were thrilled. They thought they'd finally crack the case, but when they took Faffinger to the forest, he was unable to find where he'd allegedly dug the hole. He never even came close to the correct location. On the way back to the police station, he revoked his confession. He was forced to attend ten follow-up interrogations over the following months, and never once repeated his confession. He would eventually be released without charge. A year would go by in the blink of an eye. During that time, Masaryk felt like his reputation had been ruined. It hadn't been great to start with, but now, with rumors that he might have kidnapped and accidentally killed a little girl, he felt it was time to move, or to start over somewhere new. He and his family made plans to do just that. At the same time, a new investigator was brought in, and a net was cast even more widely than it had been before. TV shows televised the case, and the police released information to the public pertaining to the wire they had found, and the possibility it had been used for communication between more than one kidnapper. In one source, I read that a mask had also been found in the woods. It was stuffed into a plastic bag and shoved into the hollow of a tree. It had two holes cut into it, and the plastic bag had a printed picture of light bulbs on it. This type of bag was being distributed in several hardware stores in the area. Now, this mask was only mentioned in one of my sources, and I saw absolutely nothing about it being tested for DNA or even definitively tied to Ursula's disappearance. All the investigative leads seemed to dry up, and by the late 80s, the case went cold. Masaryk and his family moved on with their lives while Ursula's parents tried to do the same. They missed their daughter, who they remembered as intelligent and energetic. She loved to sing and dance and paint. The family's mourning was intensely private. They didn't like to talk to the press, and they didn't want to dwell on the worst thing that ever happened to them. They made the conscious decision to move on, 
and not let the case consume their family or dominate their lives. They tried to think of her death as a terrible accident, one that couldn't be prevented. Ursula's mother worked hard not to blame herself for not going to pick up her daughter that night, while her father and sister turned to their faith to find peace. Her youngest brother found comfort in surfing, but her oldest brother, Michael, couldn't let things go. He had been in his final year of school when Ursula was kidnapped. He remembered that he was at a friend's house playing music when his mom called to tell him to come home and help search for his little sister. His mother was panicked at the time, and days later the family was heartbroken when Ursula's body was found. He too felt devastated and helpless, but over time he decided he would be her advocate in any way he could. By the mid-2000s, he'd grown up and become a music teacher with a family of his own. The state office began new efforts towards solving a backlog of cold cases, and Ursula's was the most famous. Everyone in the community knew about it, and frankly, it looked pretty bad that the police hadn't solved it by now. Prosecutors hoped that the new DNA testing and profiling might be able to help them. The boxes of evidence were re-examined and hairs were pulled from several of the items as well as samples of DNA from the box itself. Now they just needed a match. When they ran the profiles through the database, there was a match. A sample that had been taken from one of the screws on the box matched DNA found at a murder scene that took place in a Munich apartment. The woman who lived there was 59 years old and she was wealthy. She lived alone in a penthouse on the top floor. Her husband had died years earlier, leaving her the apartment. Her bloodied and broken body was found dead at the bottom of a set of stairs. The walls and the marble staircase were covered in her blood, but the injuries to her head weren't from a fall. She had been beaten with a heavy object, one with sharp edges like a hammer. Her killer had continued to hit her even after she'd fallen to the floor. He then robbed her, stealing jewelry and a substantial amount of cash she had withdrawn. Her office had been searched, or the fight had begun there. Either way, it was a mess. She didn't have children, so her nephew, with whom she was particularly close, was going to be her heir. His name was Benedict Tott, and he was called Bents. He wanted to be an actor, but his aunt encouraged him to become a lawyer. She had to take over her husband's business when he died, but she didn't have the knowledge to do so successfully. She wanted Bents to take over for her. Shortly before he was to take his final exams, he dropped out of law school, but he didn't tell anyone. Instead, he held a graduation party for himself and continued working as a parking lot attendant at his aunt's apartment complex, as he had done throughout school. He and Charlotte, his aunt, had reportedly had a fight on the day that she was killed, and he had no alibi. He said he was home alone. If the time of her murder was correct he would have had a very brief period of time which he could have biked from his home to hers and killed her. Police would allege that her inheritance was his motive, and they found his DNA on a glass in her dishwasher as well as on one of her dressers inside her flat. When they ran his DNA, a hit came back on evidence that was found in Ursula's murder. The DNA tied the two together. The police once again thought they had found their guy, but Bence was only a toddler when Ursula was killed. There was no way he could have done it. I know what you're thinking. Maybe somebody in his family did it. But they couldn't find any ties between anyone in Bence's family and Ursula. 
It was eventually determined that there had been cross-contamination in the lab that had done the DNA work. This made the police and the investigation look pretty bad, and even more time had run out on Ursula's case. Once again, the case would be reinvestigated. Klaus Pfaffinger had died, but Masryk was alive and well. He lived with his wife in northern Germany and ran a boat accessories business and a snack bar. In 2007, he was placed under surveillance and an undercover officer was used to befriend him. His car, his home, and phone were tapped as well. He was overheard discussing the statute of limitations on Ursula's case, but he never admitted to killing her or kidnapping her. In October of that year, his house was searched and he was asked to provide DNA. His DNA didn't match any DNA found on the box. The police didn't find much at his house, but what they did find was an old reel-to-reel tape recorder. They wondered if this device could have been the one used to record the annoying jingle that was used in the ransom phone calls. A sound expert was brought in to analyze the recordings made by the police and the sounds that came from pressing the buttons on the reel-to-reel recorder. Somehow, after months of analysis, it was concluded that the recorder had been the one used in the original kidnapping. Masaryk was arrested and would be put to trial. Something interesting about Germany's judicial system is that relatives of victims of serious crimes are allowed to join the prosecuting team. They have access to everything that the prosecutor would have access to, including witnesses, evidence, and they can even question the judge. Ursula's parents didn't want to be involved, but her big brother did. Michael, now in his 40s, wanted to know the truth, no matter how much it hurt. The trial began in February of 2009 almost 28 years after Ursula's death. The courtroom was packed, and Masaryk was on display. He was described as a bearded giant. His wife sat next to him. She was also on trial as an accessory to the crime. Masaryk insisted that he was innocent. He said, I know I was certainly not a good citizen, sometimes rude, and we will see many attempts to portray me as a bad person, but I have nothing to do with this act. The prosecution had no problem showing his bad side. His daughter and stepson didn't have much good to say about their father, and his ex-wife had something terrible to share with the jury. There is some animal cruelty about to be discussed, so fast forward about 30 seconds if that's something you don't want to hear about. In addition to other criminal offenses, including fraud, his ex-wife shared a story about their family dog. In 1974, Masaryk went to Oktoberfest, where he likely drank too many beers. When he returned home, he had found their mixed-breed dog, Susie, had knocked over the garbage bin. He grabbed the dog and locked it inside the basement freezer. The next day, his wife at the time went down to grab some meat to defrost for dinner, only to discover her beloved dog frozen to death. Masaryk later joked that he had banished the dog to exile in Siberia. If that story wasn't enough to turn the jury against him, they laid out the circumstantial evidence they had gathered. First, of course, his old friend Pfaffinger had fingered him as the kidnapper. Once on site, as I mentioned earlier, Pfaffinger couldn't find the actual hole that he had supposedly dug, but he had been able to tell investigators about the size and depth of the hole and about the box. He was also able to correctly describe the soil conditions. The officer who interviewed him believed he purposely misled them at the forest. 
The prosecutor said Masaryk had the motive because he was in debt. He had the knowledge and the means to build a box like the one Ursula was buried in, and a piece of leather used in the construction of the box was cut from a belt owned by someone who had a very large waist. And, well, Masaryk fit that description. The key element for the prosecution was the tape recorder. When questioned about where he had got it in 2007, he said he'd only bought it recently at a flea market, but he couldn't show proof of purchase, and no one at the fair remembered him selling the recorder. That and the prosecution's so-called sound expert's testimony that Masaryk's recorder was the one used to play the ransom jingle were the meat and potatoes of the case. I have to wonder why someone would keep a tape recorder around for over 28 years. In March of 2010, the prosecutor summed things up, saying that Masaryk had buried Ursa alive in the box and he was a cold-blooded, merciless killer. A group of three judges and two jurors found him guilty and sentenced him to life in prison. His wife was acquitted, and nearly everyone was happy, but one very important person wasn't. Michael Herman, Ursula's sister, believed that Masaryk was innocent. He had the opportunity to become intimate with the details of his sister's case, and for the life of him he just couldn't understand how Masaryk could be convicted based on the sounds of a recorder, let alone one that had been played through a phone and then recorded onto another device. We can't forget that he was a musician. He spent hour after hour on instruments making recordings and familiarizing himself with sounds. He also read over 6,000 pages of the trial. He'd lock himself in his study at night, reading and rereading excerpts, but nothing brought him peace. He couldn't understand why Faffinger's revoked confession was deemed reliable 28 years after the fact, when it was dismissed and he was let go years earlier. Michael believed Faffinger was drunk during his confession. The police had noted his inebriation. They even noted that he had hallucinations while in custody. His ex-wife said he was a lazy man and wouldn't have accepted the job of digging a hole that big. During the trial, the court heard that Faffinger's confession hadn't even been signed. In fact, an investigator wrote the conversation down from memory weeks later. These issues were very concerning to Michael, and when he expressed these concerns to his lawyer, he was advised not to make a big deal out of it, but he couldn't let it go. He wrote a letter to the court calling the sound expert's report about the tape recorder incomplete and one-sided. The judges weren't happy, but they were obliged to read the letter out loud in court. It was unusual and sensational for a member of the prosecution's team to make a statement that would defend the accused. The victim's own brother didn't believe that Masaryk was guilty. Michael would make a statement that he wasn't convinced of Masaryk's guilt, but he also wasn't convinced of his innocence. During the trial, the two men corresponded. In one letter Michael wrote to Masaryk, it said, I was surprised to receive a letter from you, because it was certainly clear to you that despite all the doubts I have about your guilt, I have considerable reservations about your person. If you are not the culprit, I wish for more insights, and that you can be rehabilitated. If you are the culprit, go to hell. Over the course of the trial, Michael had developed tinnitus, or ringing in his ears. It was brought on by stress and bothered him night and day. Between the tinnitus and his obsession with the case, stress was placed on his marriage. 
He and his wife separated in 2012. Still feeling like he needed answers, Michael came up with a plan. He filed a civil claim seeking 20,000 euros in damages from Masaryk for causing his tinnitus. He had found a bit of a legal loophole because he knew that Masaryk would defend the case on the basis that he was wrongfully convicted, so he couldn't be considered responsible. The court would have to reconsider the facts of the case before coming to a decision. Michael hoped this would give him the opportunity to get closer to the truth about what had happened to his sister. The judges knew what Michael had done, and it got their panties in a wad. They were mad. There were several attempts to stop the case from going forward, but it dragged on for more than two years. As it went on, it became clear that Michael wasn't the only person with doubts about the original verdict. Appearing for the defense was a retired physicist and amateur sound expert. He testified that after a year of testing, he came to the conclusion that it was impossible for someone to prove that the tape recorder found in Masaryk's house was the one used during the kidnapping. For a couple years after Masaryk's criminal trial, Michael had thought there was still a 50% chance that he was a kidnapper. But now he puts it at only 1%. The judges disagreed. In August of 2018, they ordered Masaryk to pay Michael $7,000. What this really meant was that Masaryk was still found guilty and therefore was responsible for both the murder and the tinnitus. Michael won the court case, but ultimately failed in his mission to find more answers. He knew the case material far better than any of the lawyers for the defense or the prosecution and still believes that Werner Masaryk is innocent. He believes that piece of wire that was strung between the trees was a key piece of evidence that could help identify the real kidnappers. Hunters, joggers, and cyclists knew the forest well, but so did the boarding school pupils. None of them were fingerprinted at the time of the investigation. There was a piece of evidence that hinted at the possibility of someone younger being involved in the plot. On one of the ransom notes, pressed into the paper, was the impression of a mathematical probability tree. This was the sort taught to teenagers at the time. He also noted that in one of the comics found in the box, one of the main characters drove a Fiat 600, the type of car that was mentioned in the ransom note, the one that was rare in Germany at the time. This suggested that the kidnapper may have read that comic book. There are a couple unanswered questions that I have. First, if Ursula was given nitrous oxide to knock her out, it would have been administered via a mask, so it's unlikely that nitrous oxide was used. Also, she would have woken up within a few minutes after the nitrous oxide supply was removed. According to the autopsy, she had no traces of either ether or chloroform in her body but it did say she had two discolored stains on either side of her larynx. I'm not sure what exactly it means by stains. Maybe it's bruising, or maybe it's a translation issue, as some of the articles I read were originally written in German and translated to English. According to the autopsy report, there were no needle marks found either. So the question is, how was she rendered unconscious when she was placed in the box? I wonder if that mask they found pushed into the tree hollow was ever tested for DNA. It was not definitively linked to Ursula's case, but it is an interesting possibility. Finally, with all the advancements in DNA research, 
I wonder if DNA could be pulled from that fingerprint that was found in the duct tape, or if it's far too degraded by this time. I'm guessing it would have been tested by now if it was viable. Werner Masaryk spent 14 years in jail for Ursula's kidnapping. He is scheduled for release this summer, in 2023. I cannot confirm whether he's free at this time or not, but I can safely say that Michael and his family still do not have all the answers they're looking for. I do hope they find some comfort in the happy memories they have of Ursula and her love for them. I had several great sources for this episode, but the one that I used most and quoted throughout this episode was an article in The Guardian called The Girl in the Box, The Mysterious Crime That Shocked Germany by Zan Rice. I'll post pictures to go with this episode on Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon. There are links in the show description on your podcast app that will take you to Twisted Travel and True Crime social media, as well as links that will allow you to become a financial contributor to the podcast. For those of you who are already contributing, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Finally, thanks to everyone who has taken the time to comment on the podcast or recommend it to your friends, as well as rating and reviewing it on your podcast apps. I really can't thank you enough because honestly, I struggle finding time to promote the podcast myself. So you are a huge blessing. My heart is full and I hope yours is too. As always, I wish you all fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.